0: Good morning, church, joining us online for worship this morning. It's good to have you with us as we continue our way through this summer series where we've been looking at some of the hard sayings of Jesus. You know, Jesus was a great teacher, but let's be honest, some of the things that he said, are hard to understand and just as hard to apply in our lives. The disciples faced the same problem. Often they'd hear him speak, and they'd come up to him right afterwards and said, Jesus, this is a hard thing that you've just said. And so during these lazy days of summer, we've been picking apart some of the hard sayings of Jesus. And we've noted, we've used this metaphor that sometimes the words of Jesus— they're more like hard candy than they are like soft, melt-in-your-mouth chocolate. You have to leave them in there for a while if they're going to get into your system. If you bite down hard on them quickly, you're going you're to break something. But the more you leave them there and you ruminate on them, the more they, way, the more they have a way of getting inside of you. Today we're looking at another one of those hard sayings, a passage from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 11. Let me invite you to open up your Bibles or turn on your devices. Luke 11, we're going to read verses 5 through 13. And then Jesus said to them, suppose you had a friend and you go to him at night and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me. I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up. I can't give you anything. And I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. And so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and those who seek, find. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, Though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If you glance back in the Gospel of Luke to the beginning of the chapter, of chapter 11, you'll notice this whole conversation, the story and its interpretation. Uh, they're preceded by a question that's asked by the disciples. They say simply, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? And so so Jesus, like all really good communicators, he he offers them an illustration. He offers them a story. In the story, we have this man who's in bed at midnight. Now listen, in a world without electricity, Midnight was really midnight. It was the middle of the night. You were sound asleep. Uh, In our world, midnight is probably when you turn off the TV and you make your way up to your room and you begin your night. Not then. This was midnight. And and this man, like most people of the time, was living in a simple one-bedroom house. In the one-bedroom house, there would be one bed, one sleeping area. And he was tucked in there with his wife and all of his children. That's why he says, listen, I'm, I'm in bed. I'm in bed with my children. The whole family was there in one sleeping lump of humanity. And he's awakened. By the sound of an emergency, a knock at the door, what could it be? My wife has been in an accident. She's bleeding. Come quickly, send help. Our donkey's broken down the road. Send send oats. Send help. (laughs) But that's not it at all. The man at the door says, Hey, I'm doing some late night entertaining. We've got guests. Can you spare a loaf of bread? And there's no way, of course, for the man who's stuck in bed to respond to that request without arousing his whole family, without waking all of them. But it says eventually, the man who is knocking gets what he's asking for. Why? Jesus says, the man inside the house gives him bread, not because he's a great friend, but because of the man's, and here is the expression, shameless audacity. He won't give up. He won't go away. Now, what makes this saying so hard? It's that Jesus is describing prayer in a way that that even though it's consistent throughout the Bible, offers an approach to prayer that really is counter to what most of us understand religion to say about prayer, and and even what common sense might lead us to believe about prayer. The word that he uses to describe it is the word shameless, shameless prayer. You'll find some translations, some English translations, try and tidy up the word a little bit. They'll use words like boldness or persistence. But the word Jesus uses means more than that. It means impudence or impertinence, even rudeness, a kind of discourtesy. That's what Jesus says about prayer. Pray like that, he says. Bother God. You're bothering me, says the man who's in bed. But because he continued to bother, he got his bread. Jesus says, pray like that. That runs against all good sense. It runs against what we imagine religion might say about prayer. The idea of of continually coming back again in a troublesome, relentless way. Now, and just in just case we think this is kind of a a one off or maybe a, a mistake or a misinterpretation, Jesus says it all over again. If you flip ahead in your Bibles to Luke in chapter eighteen you 'll see that this isn 't just a fluke in Luke eighteen he tells again how to pray, and he uses another illustration just as startling in this one there 's a judge indifferent, unjust, uh, really disinterested and And appearing before this judge is a widow who is seeking justice. The judge doesn't want to give it to her, doesn't want to be bothered with her, but she just wears him down. And this is what he says, Luke 18, verse 5. Because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. Why? So that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Just so we don't miss the point, Jesus comments on the parable. This is what he says. And will not God give to his chosen those who cry to him all day and night? I tell you, he will give them justice and do so speedily. Day and night, day and night, come to God. Shamelessness, impudence, impertinence. It's the reason, you know, Jesus likens prayer to knocking. Uh, We imagine a wonderful kind of pastoral-looking image set in stained glass of of a man at a door in the middle of the night. But but knocking is meant to be an intrusive endeavor. Uh, Witness the fact that, you never really just sort of knock once. That's not the point. You knock once and people in the house look at each other and say, did something fall? I'm not sure what's happened. No, you you knock repeatedly until you get what you need and somebody answers the door. But let me just pause for a second because I want to say something about the way we interpret Parables. The way we read parables. A, a parable is a, particularly, a particular literary form. A parable is not an allegory. Uh, this, is, this is the key difference between a parable and an allegory. In an allegory, every feature of the illustration corresponds with some spiritual truth. Some people will want to read a parable that way and try and find a direct linkage between every facet of the parable and some spiritual truth. And, and really, that's the wrong way to read a parable. A parable has one point, one distinctive emphasis. In an allegory, every feature maps. But, but to be frank, the Bible, for the most part, doesn't contain allegory. It contains stories, it contains poems, it contains sermons, it contains letters. And where we sometimes get into trouble, particularly in books like Revelation, is when we read them as allegory and try and map in a one-to-one relationship every part of the, uh, of the illustration or the parable of the story to something else and say this is the direct spiritual link. But here's the here's the reason I make that little discursus. Jesus wasn't asked how does God receive our prayers. He was asked how should we pray. What's what's the way that we pray? And the point of the parables, both the one we looked at earlier in Luke 11 and this one in Luke 18, is not to say that that God answers prayers like a sleeping friend or a disinterested judge. He does it unsympathetically. No, the the point is these parables respond to the question on hand how must we go to god when we pray and jesus says you do it this way relentlessly boldly constantly shamelessly you take your prayers to god now that's that's hard i mean i hope you agree this is a hard saying why is it so hard because let's be honest it doesn't make a lot of, a lot of sense if god loves us if god knows what we need Why should we have to do it this way? If we respect him, if we honor him, why should we do it this way? And since we often do this and it feels like we don't get what we want, why should we keep doing it? Isn't it all kind of futile? The answer to all of those questions is right here in the text. Jesus gives the answer. It's an important answer. It's a telling answer. And it actually is an answer that we can use a way of, of judging or discerning what's going on in our own lives. And if we grab hold of the answer, it gives us a new way of charting our lives in the way that we move forward. And before I give you the answer, before I, I tell you why we really ought to pray this way, shamelessly, I, I want to make sure that we're on the same page when it comes to prayer and and why it's important. Not because this is the secret code that unlocks the great cupboard in the sky from which a lot of fantastic things fall into our lives. No, prayer, prayer is a clue to the origin of our own hearts. Prayer is a clue to the mysteries of life as we face them right now. Prayer tells you something about where you've come from and it shows you, who you were built by, and what you were built for. One of the marvelous promises of the Bible, describing God, it says, all things were made by him and for him. Prayer gives us a glimpse of why that's the case. One of the most interesting things about prayer is that it's almost always an involuntary reflex of the human soul. No matter what a person believes, no matter how unbelieving they are, they have probably prayed one of the snottiest things I guess Christians found themselves saying is there are no atheists in foxholes. You've heard that before, no atheists in foxholes. When things get desperate, people pray. We just know it's the truth. There's lots of anecdotal support for that. Mark Twain, an ardent unbeliever, admits that when his wife was very sick just before her death, he says, I prayed and prayed and prayed like a dog. As a pastor, I can't tell you how many times I've presided over funerals for families who aren't sure what they believe or that they believe much of anything, but they still needed to pray. It's just rooted in something deep within us. It says something about the origin of the human soul. Uh, Prayer says something about the foundation of our lives, and one of the great illustrations comes uh, from the pages of C.S. Lewis. Lewis says, if you want to know what's lurking there in the bottom of your basement, you have to surprise your basement. And here's what he meant. If you want to know if there are rats or roaches down there, you don't announce it. Hey, I'm coming down the stairs. And then open up the door slowly as you say, I'm on my way down. I'm almost at the bottom. No, you want to know what's in your basement, you sneak up to the door You jump to the bottom of the stairs, you fling on the lights, and then you watch as everything scatters. You have to surprise what's in the basement in order to really see it. You have to surprise your basement to discover what's really there. And then you'll see all those little things scurrying away, and then, I don't know, I guess it's time to call the pest control people. But the point is, it's when your defenses are down, when you're not overthinking, when you're just reacting When terrible things have happened and you're desperate, it's then that you find out what's really going on down there in your life. Don't say it's unnatural. Don't say that's not the real you. You are religious. We are not just homo sapiens, humans thinking. We are homo religioso. Prayer speaks to the part of us that is really human. When you feel vulnerable, when you know that you're that you're not in control that's when you most feel your humanity it's when you're most human that you pray to not pray that's what dehumanizes you when you feel desperate and when you when you really realize that that you can't get out on your own that's when you pray It's when you're most vulnerable that you realize what it most means to be mortal, to be human. And that's when people almost instinctively pray. So prayer tells us something not just about the origin of the human heart, but it says something about who you were built by, that you have this deep, deep longing within you for something more than you are capable of achieving. And that longing for God is what actually humanizes you. Prayer is the clue to the origin of your heart. And prayer is the thing that brings you back into connection with your humanity. So let's get back to that question posed in Luke chapter 11. Why does Jesus invite us to pray this way, this shameless, barefaced kind of prayer? It doesn't make sense. It seems to show maybe a lack of of proper respect for God. And if you know that so many times in the past it feels like you prayed and you didn't get what you asked for, it seems futile to do it. So why pray? And here's the answer. You pray shamelessly because you are one of his children. And you must pray shamelessly if you want to understand what it means to be more and more like one of his children. The key to the whole thing is what has sometimes been called the doctrine of Christian adoption, which is just a fancy way of saying the idea that you have been given a radical new status, a radical new identity, as a child of God, a son and a daughter of your heavenly Father. In verse 11, 5 to 10, when Jesus is talking about how to pray, he gives that expression or that illustration of, of this friend who's relentless and banging away at the door. But, but in the second half of the passage, verses 11 to 13, the metaphor changes. And now he starts talking about prayer in terms of family. It's like coming to your Father. And here's why. You remember in the most famous passage on prayer, when Jesus is instructing his disciples and he leaves them an example, an exemplar of what prayer looks like. He doesn't say, pray this way, our friend in heaven. He doesn't say, pray this way, our judge in heaven. What does he say? Our Father who is in heaven. Prayer makes no sense except when you get it on family terms. To trust and and yet relentlessly come to God is something only a child would do. Let me put it this way. Children, on the one hand, they have that kind of impertinence, that audaciousness to continually tug on their father's sleeve. And yet they do it with such trust, such abandon, knowing that... They're never going to overstay their welcome with their father. Children, they do it assertively and they do it trustingly. And it's only when we think of ourselves like children and see God like a father that prayer of that type begins to make sense. Let me let me break that down. Children come to their father assertively. We pray. Assertively, but none of the things Jesus is saying here makes sense unless you can understand God in the language of family. I mean, look at the great saints of old, it's astonishing. Abraham, Moses, what are they doing? They're pleading with God in prayer, negotiating, arguing, insisting, reminding Him, God, remember when you said this, I'm holding you to that. Shamelessly coming back to God again and again and again. Now think about the great kings and the great presidents and the great influential and powerful people of the world. You would never approach them that way. The only people that can get away with that kind of approach, take those kinds of liberties, are their children. Here's the point. Behavior that would seem rude and impertinent and And discourteous in relating to a friend. Maybe it isn't any of those things. When I'm coming to my father. The way my five-year-old treats me. If anybody else treated me that way, including my spouse, it would be inappropriate. But but it's not for my five-year-old. Your relationship with God was radically changed. When you came to him through Christ. Adoption. Adoption, the fact that he is now your father, you pray to him, our father in heaven. It's what makes sense of Christian prayer. It only works on family terms. All other understandings of prayer, they just, they work on a different set. If you're looking for a verse in your Bible to really highlight and reflect on, let me give you one from the Gospel of John in chapter 1. John 1, verse 12. Yet to all who received him, received Jesus. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Adoption. Most people believe that, that coming to Christ, that being a Christian involves something like this. Like, I'm going to commit myself to you, God, And I'm going to commit myself, I'm going to promise to be good. And in a sense, what that's doing is is more like drawing up a contract with an employer than it is coming to a father. Many people think that that's what it means to be a Christian. I'm going to give myself to God and devote myself to to pray and and to come to church and to read his word. I'm going to try and live a Christian life and do my best. And in that case, what you're really relating to is God as your boss. And when you sign up, you agree to work for him, you expect some things in return. I expect a salary. I expect benefits. I expect to be able to go to my employer from time to time. But you don't go the way a little child goes. You don't go with that barefaced joy You don't go with the certainty that you'll always be heard. You don't go constantly. You don't go in for the little things as well as the big things. And you never go unless you feel like you've worked hard enough and you deserve it. That's a completely different form of prayer. And yet, that's often how people pray. What does it look like? It's formal, it rarely feels intimate. It's not barefaced or shameless, certainly, but it's also—it's not certain, it's not assured, and it's not rooted in, in a real understanding of what it means to be a Christ follower. What's so hard about this saying? What's so hard about this kind of prayer? Is that it really gets to the heart? of the gospel and sometimes what we see when we peel back all the layers is different than what we expect to see it can tell you this understanding of prayer whether you understand the gospel or not whether you understand the difference between true christianity and mere moralism or or legalism again lots of people think People in the church, people outside of the church, that being a Christian means I commit myself to God, now I'm going to do good things for Him, and in return, He will help me. That makes Him your boss. And it's a good thing to have God as your boss, but it's not enough just to have Him as your employer. There's something much more radical that goes on in the life of a true Christian. There in John 1, verse 12, it says, When you become a Christ follower, you become a child of God, you are adopted into his family. Hear this. It's so important. Adoption is not so much a change of nature or even a change of behavior. Adoption is a change of status. Your family status changes by a loving act of grace through your father. And now you enjoy the privileges and the intimacy and the unconditional acceptance of a beloved child. You have access to the father that no one else has. And the reason it can happen, the reason it happens is because Jesus Christ is not merely an example for us to follow, not just a great teacher who's worth listening to. He is the means through which We are adopted into the family of God. In the clearest possible terms, there are are really only two ways to approach God. One is to say, God, would you be my boss? I'm going to live a good life. Please then, because I'm living a good life, would you hear my prayers? That's one approach. But here's the other approach. God, would you be my father? Father because I can't live a perfect life, but I know that Jesus has already done it, and he's done it for me. And Because he's done that, and because he died for me, I'm going to refuse to let anybody else lay claim to the title like Savior or Lord in my life, and I'm going to rest in him, and him alone for my salvation. And I'm going to come to you as Abba, Father. And I'm going to trust that you hear me in my prayers because I'm your child. Those are two fundamentally different ways of relating to God. And really they speak to two very different understandings of religion. God is my boss. God is my father. Saved by my efforts or saved by Christ's efforts. Listen to me because I've worked hard and I deserve an audience with you. Or listen to me because Christ's work was perfect and complete and now I belong to you. Two totally different things. In one, your prayer life will always feel anxious. It will probably drift in the direction of always feeling formal. It will be intermittent it will only happen or largely happen when you're desperate. And when God doesn't come through on your terms, and your time, you'll wonder what's wrong. What's wrong with him or, or what's wrong with me? But in the other, in the other there's trust. A child trusts their father, even when they don't always understand what their father is doing. There's, big people do that, children will say. They, they do things that we don't always understand, but... But this I know, I know he loves me. Two very different approaches to God. Now, just because I I can anticipate what a conversation might look like after a message like this, don't mishear me on this point. When we talk about going to God shamelessly and barefaced and, and imprudently, It doesn't mean that we forget about the majesty and the wonder and the awesomeness of God. Of course, God is majestic. Of course, we don't forget that when we pray. But it's because of his majesty and because of his holiness and because of his towering greatness that this kind of accessibility is such an unbelievable, miraculous gift. Come on in, Jesus says. You can pour your heart out to him. The boldness of it is something unique to those who know they are adopted. It just doesn't make sense on any other terms. Come like a child. Children pray assertively. Children pray trustingly. Prayer only works on those family terms. Remember, you're, you're going to your father. You're not going to a genie. Just before we close, I want to say just one or two things about about what it feels like to go to your father and then go away feeling, not unheard, but like you didn't get what you asked for. How do you deal with unanswered prayer? Well, maybe that language that we just used is part of the problem, is that we're not really going to our father Actually, we are going to a genie. I mean, what's the difference? In one case, you go in the context of relationship and you pour out your soul. In the other, you go to an object and you hope that if you rub it the right way, the genie comes out and you get what you want. And if you don't get what you want, you toss it away because either it's broken or, I don't know, all the wishes have been used up. Do you really understand unanswered prayer the way a child would? I don't always get big people, but I know he loves me. Or are you bitter and upset and angry because you think you got a broken lamp with an impotent genie? You're not practicing the fact that you're a child and you're not responding to him him as a father. Remember, prayer only works on family terms. Let me give you another example. Some of you aren't comfortable praying like this. You don't pray relentlessly. And it's not because you're mad. And it's not because you, you're upset with God. It's because deep down you feel like you don't deserve it. You're you're unworthy. It's because of something that I've done. or Or they've told you this is because of something that you've done. God must be angry at you. So there's no sense going to him to get him to correct it. In a sense, going back again and again to talk it over, you're talking to God, in that case, like an employee, not like a child. Some will think of him like Aladdin's lamp. Some will think of him just like the boss. And I've not been performing well in my job, so now is not the time to go to the boss's office and ask for a raise. And, of course, there's lots of us who will say, well, I asked him once. That's all he should need. That's not a father. That's a computer. And God is not a computer. My computer, you put the file in there once. You try and put it in again, I get an error message, so the file's already in there. You don't need to do it again. File can't be copied on itself. You only need it once, but God is not a computer, he's a father. And he works in relationship. Why do you think he wants us to come back again and again and again? Because fathers love repetition. And to my kids, that's not just because we're hard of hearing and our memory is fading. We love repetition because we love to have our children remind us of of what we said. We love to know that you're listening, that you've heard Prayer works on the basis of family relationships. Our Heavenly Father loves it when there's a coming and a depending on Him. The Father wants us to be talking about the things that He said in His Word and incorporating them into our lives. And, and, And He wants to know that we enjoy spending time with Him and seeking His presence. The Father is not a computer. Again, family relationship. Therefore, knock. Keep knocking, keep knocking, not just because it's good for us, but because at some level it's good for God. It's what he loves the most. And that's just how families work. One last example. Wives, the next time you ask your husband, you love me, and your husband said, I I told you once, Remember that day back in 1987? Why do you need to hear it again? The answer is your wife is not a hard drive. She is not a computer. She's a person. And you use the language of family. The reason you're relentless is not because you forget and not because you're rude. It's because... In family, we just keep tugging at our father's sleeve. I'm not sure how that resonates with you. Whether that language is familiar and warm and you're smiling all the way through or or you're scratching your head or you've never heard it that way before or, or maybe you're even protesting inside. Do you know that you're part of God's family? I mean, have you ever really said, Lord, I can't be good enough, I can't do it. But I want to live in the confidence that you created me, that you love me, that you've accepted me because of your child Jesus and what Jesus has done. I promise you there is no better way to live. And if you live that way, then you will pray like this. Relentlessly, respectfully, lovingly, impertinently, boldly, expectantly, shamelessly. Let's do that right now. Will you join me as we pray? Our Father in heaven, on childlike legs, We bring ourselves into your majestic presence. And we tug away on your robe. Father, you haven't forgotten us. Father, thank you for the ways that you love us. Father, we know you care about us. These are some of the things that we think we need. Listen to us while we pray. And God, you're so much bigger than we are. So we just want to trust that that you will give us exactly what we would ask for if we knew what you know. But of course we don't. So we'll just share what's on our hearts. God, listen to us as we pray. And expect to hear from us again in a few minutes, in a few hours, in a few days, day by day until we get to have these conversations face to face in glory. Together we pray in Jesus' name as the family of God. Amen.